Hi, everybody. I'm Danielle Yet from the Critical Faith team. We're taking a break from our usual episode format to bring you a very special series of interviews about worldview topics and the studies that go on here at ICS. A little while ago, ICS junior member Grace Carhart sat down with our senior members and asked them to share their perspectives on four themes, wonder, heartbreak, hope, and worldview. Each episode highlights these themes in turn. For this final episode of the series, Grace asks our senior members to reflect more broadly on worldview in relation to their disciplines. So once again, here's Grace. So what writer or thinker do you wish more people had heard of? Well, we live in such a rarefied world with philosophers, like the most famous philosophers in our, in, in you know, in like I, I'm a specialist in this philosopher named Richard Rorty, who's actually huge if you're into philosophy and you've not, there's no way you couldn't have heard about him, but almost nobody in ordinary walks of life that I cross have ever heard of him. But I, you know, it's, that's not necessarily my answer. But I mean, I, I would just want to say that in Canada, I wish I wish there was a bit more literacy with with the philosophers we have. Part of that's the problem with philosophy and allowing itself to be esoteric. And um, you know, one writer that more people knew about. Jeez. I'm bad at this because you know why I'm having trouble answering is because I don't know who people don't know about. <laughs> Because I don't pay attention to what people are into in culture that much, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I could end up saying someone that, oh no, everybody's heard of that person or something like that. But uh, the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins—that'll be my final answer. <laughs> yeah, I think someone like Christine de Pizan, uh, Eloise is amazing. He's talking about Eloise, the nun and scholar here. Eloise was a famous abbess and scholar who corresponded with Peter Abelard. If you hadn't noticed, Bob is a medievalist, which explains why his next recommendation is Hildegard of Bingen, another abbess and writer. And Hildegard, uh, I always love the effect she has on, on people when I, you know, when I, when I teach her. I'm going to go with one of these allegorists that Bob and I really enjoy, which is, uh, you know, Alain de Lille. I mean, I think he's uh, Jean de Meux, who was who was responsible for the Romance of the Rose. Um, these are, you know, poetry as philosophy, and really, uh, you know, wonderfully complex and interesting. Well, I picked someone in in New Testament studies. Someone who used to be well known in New Testament uh, studies was a fellow called John A. T. Robinson. He was also an Anglican bishop. He was involved in the legal battles around whether Lady Chatterley's lover should be published. And um, he wrote a little book called Honest to God, which was a theological book, which was a bestseller, not just for theology, but for anything. This was back in the 60s. Um, so he's known as a progressive theologian. Uh, really, really interesting New Testament scholar who didn't hunt with the pack 
and took positions that were contrary to consensus. Not part of the liberal Protestant guild at all in that way. I mean, we're very familiar with all the literature, on good terms with people, but we've come to very different conclusions. His, his work on the fourth gospel was, you know, very different from anybody else at the time. And um, I'm thinking he's probably not read very much now. And um, it would be a shame if he, if he was forgotten. So that's just someone in the New Testament. In philosophy, I mean, there are, you know, people like Michael Polanyi and so forth. So they're, they're well known, but they're not really well known. The problem was thinkers that people have heard of but haven't read, you know, it would be good if he was read, I think. Um, stuff in philosophy of science is very important, actually, as well. I mean, so Polanyi was in philosophy of science. So, as a philosopher, okay, Paul Feyerabend, he wrote a book called Against Method. His argument was um, the question about how do you distinguish science from non-science. And um, method, its method was seen as that's the hallmark of science is it uses a certain method. Is it all about verifying things and then non-science can't verify anything? Well, no, you can't verify scientific claims. So, oh, well, we try and falsify things. Karl Popper's emphasis. Science is about making imaginative, bold conjectures, but you then try and falsify them. That's how you show that you're doing science rather than just kind of dreaming or, or, or something like that. Well, scientific claims are resistant to falsification. Uh, so, anyway, what um, Feyerabend argued was that any definition of science, whether you use method or not, is, then, is either going to be so narrow that it's actually not going to cover science at all. It's going to be too strict. So you, there could be no science if you adhered to it. Or it's so broad that you're forced to include things that nobody thinks of as science. It was a great kind of argument at a time when, you know, people were really turning to science as the privileged way to wisdom and to truth and so forth. And he just kind of, you know, used his philosophical skills to um, explode that. heart let me more have pity on let me live to my sad self hereafter kind charitable not live this tormented mind with this tormented mind tormenting yet that's gerard manley hopkins if you were wondering as recommended by ron kuypers it should maybe come as no surprise that a group of philosophers would recommend poets like hopkins alongside medieval abbesses and contemporary thinkers after all, thinking about life, language, spirituality, and being often leads directly to philosophy, religion, and literature. As we reach the end of this four-part series, I've thought a lot about big questions among these genres, and I've tried to examine how those questions take shape in our normal, everyday lives. 
My professors have been gracious enough to answer my sometimes ill-timed questions, but their answers, as I hope you have also heard, have been quiet and thoughtful and reach around things to get at what really is in a way that, I think, philosophy does particularly well. With these thoughts and more in mind, welcome to the last episode in a special four-part series of Critical Faith, the ICS podcast sponsored by the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics. For this series, I have sat down with the four main professors at ICS to chat about academia, personal experience, and religious life. This last episode is about the concept of worldviewing, the elusive idea of what it means to look at life in a certain kind of way. To start the conversation, I asked my interviewees to simply describe what they thought a worldview was. Worldview is. Well, maybe, I mean, maybe the best way to, to answer is, is, as would be my want, is to give kind of the historical, you know, the moment of where the notion of a Weltanschauung, a worldview, um, became, you know, part of a, a philosophy. And there, you know, the 19th century idea that there would be a, uh, an ex- well, I'll, I'll just stick with Hegel for a moment, but coming out through, you know, expressing itself through the activity of human beings with some kind of spirit um, where the, the absolute is working itself out, uh, working itself out, but only through, you know, human activity. Um, and so there is a display, you know, of that spirit um, that's, you know, that's constitutive of, you know, of the ultimate concerns of whatever, you know, group happens to be working, uh, working out um, their ultimate concerns in that way. So, yes, I think that a worldview says something, you know, more, it's, it gets at something that governs our, our perspective even you know, despite our best efforts to have it not govern our perspective, um, you know, it's it's really based in our ultimate concerns, and um, you know, and will express itself. So I, th- I, yeah, I think it's I think that there is um, you know value in that idea certainly. Yeah, I usually uh, avoid. Um, <laughs> I usually avoid uh, the talk worldview myself certainly as a noun uh, i like world viewing so that is to say this is something that you do so it's it's uh it has to do with the ongoing living of life and uh so i mean i usually talk about hunches so i'm i'm you know big on the things that flow from the heart so to speak and they're not necessarily visual phenomena although they can certainly uh i mean you can certainly use visual metaphors and and so on. So, but I tend to talk about hunches. You know, these things that come from deep places where you kind of go, "Yeah, I don't really know where that's coming from," but I am not letting go of that. You know, that kind of that kind of experience. So, uh, so worldview is is an orientation to existence and the living of life that is that flows from these very very deep places that you're only somewhat aware of but that that when you become aware of them produce real affect like this is central this is important i'm not giving up this 
kind of thing. So, and, and it will be more or less coherent because I think most worldviews are actually, or orientations to existence are, are spiritually ambivalent. It's not a neat story. It's a messy story, but there is something human beings have depth. I'm convinced of that, is that there's real depth to human beings and that from the depths come things that I would call central as opposed to peripheral. I mean, a worldview, when someone has a worldview or is busy worldviewing, they are, I think it, it, it's to do with, um, there are things that are deeper than worldview, right? So one's whole way of life is bigger and deeper than a worldview. A worldview is part of a way of life. So a way of life includes a way of viewing. So your worldview is rooted in your way of life, and your way of life includes all of your actions and habits, all of your experiences. Uh, so there's a great deal that can be said about way of life. But worldview is is to do with your basic beliefs, if you like, about who am I, where do I find myself, why am I in pain or anxiety, what's wrong, is a problem, and how can that be resolved, and how can I hope for that to be resolved, deep existential, perennial kind of questions, how you answer those, yeah, the world that we find ourselves in. So it's a useful notion. Well, I learned it in, in hermeneutic philosophy, but it's just a way of taking in the world. And it's a distinct, culturally distinct way of taking in the world. It's a position of orientation within the world that gives the world to you in a certain fashion and makes the world appear for you in a certain light. World viewing, it seems, is not so easy to pin down, which maybe should have been expected after also struggling to define hope, heartbreak, and wonder. Perhaps this is because world viewing is something that we do more than it is something that we think about. With this in mind, my next question was, how would you describe your experience of worldviewing? So I don't see it as a, as a self-conscious activity. I think uh, I see it more as like the glasses you carry around with you that you see through. And uh, unless it's the activity of taking off your glasses and looking at them and discussing them and all that kind of thing, in which case you're doing something different than, than using the worldview. You're actually examining it. And things you can never do that without, without while also fully uh, leaving your worldview behind or abandoning it. So, but I think human beings are capable of self-reflection in ways that you're not trapped in a worldview. You never. It's not like a prison house where you can never escape or something like that. So it's something you can work on and modify and change. Though it's something you have before you ever realize you can work on it. So, I mean, my basic beliefs about the world change and have changed over time, and. That happens, it's a very complex, convoluted kind of process of what, what changes my understanding about the nature of relationships or, or, or something like that. There's a lot of very deep kind of just living, raw kind of living over a period of time and working stuff through and not just thinking, but I mean, the whole way of I mean, 
we we really need to talk not just about our view of the world and our perspective on the world, but our whole way of experiencing the world and how we can enrich and sensitize our world experiencing, so to speak. So, um, in that context, I think a lot of the work that I do, as it were, towards changing the way I think, happens when I'm asleep, when I'm dreaming. You know, you get these, these kind of processes and subconscious stuff is happening and it's hard to articulate what's going on, but something of sometimes profound is going on and can lead to change. So that's putting it very abstractly. In terms of just changing my view on things fundamentally, I mean, here we hit a bit of a limit. I can give you examples, but they're going to be way too personal for um, something that can be broadcast. But that's the nature of the beast often, I think. Um, so, um, yeah, so I'm a little bit stuck at that point about what's, what I can say next. Yeah, I'm, I would have to, I guess, I'll take, you know, I'll take it from the, the personal perspective of, you know, maybe to, to, you know, introduce that kind of journeying notion that, that we can be, we can create we can continually assess and, and come to terms with our worldview in what it is that we are, whatever it is that we're doing, um, you know, by paying attention to our greatest commitments and by paying attention and, and re-examining our greatest commitments, you know, how context will, will sharpen certain um, tensions or, or not, um, and, be, and paying attention in some kind of a self-conscious way to what our ultimate commitments how they, you know, the ones that were not even clear that uh, are uh, relevant. Um, so I think it's a, it's a positive, you know, I, I think it's sort of the Augustinian way of know thyself is, is underlies uh, an ongoing sort of commitment to, to, to examination. I think I've actually used this. Maybe I haven't used this story, but th this will do. So, of course, I was catechized in a Reformed tradition at the, the Heidelberg Catechism. So the faith was articulated in 52 Lord's Days uh, and two or three questions with, with answers, you know, and, and actually, you know, like on the scale of 16th century confession, it's, it's kind of, it's pretty good. Anyway, you know, we had to memorize and so on and so forth. But of course, I didn't like memorizing. And so, you know, as soon as I was graduated, you know, and made profession of faith and so on and so forth, that was it. I didn't have to do that anymore. And I never thought about it again. So then uh, in, when I was 22, when I graduated from Calvin College, I had this big fellowship to go study at Johns Hopkins University. So off I went to Baltimore, Maryland. And really, it was the first time I'd lived without my parents and outside of, you know, a fairly insular community. And I was unbelievably homesick. I was very sad. And it was a very, very hard year. And there were two, uh, a couple, uh, a, Ch a Chinese-American from New York City and her Jewish boyfriend from New York City. And they were both you know, members of the American Communist Party, they're total Marxist, 
they were studying with the labor historian at Johns Hopkins, studying labor history, but the revolutions of 1949, both of them, right? These are the Marxist revolutions of 1949. Uh, well, I don't know, Marxist may be a bit premature. Marx was alive then, but uh, anyways, whatever. They were, revol they were revolutions. <laughs> and um, uh, that's what they were studying. Um, and they just took me in, right? They, they, they saw I was lonely and they had me in. We, we played, you know, we played sports in the gym together, you know, uh, we, we went running through Baltimore. Uh, they fed me all kinds of dinners. They were just a grace of my life. And so when, after the first year, I realized this is not where I need to be because the guy that I'd gone to study with had changed. His interests had, had evolved in a way that, I, you know, I had read his books, but he was moving in a different direction. He wasn't interested in the stuff that I was interested in. And anyways, to make a long story short, he, he and I agreed that even though I'd done all right, um, I should really, I probably would be happier in a different place. So, okay. So I was leaving and uh, I'm going to get married and uh, my wife and I were going to move to Toronto and I was going to figure out how to get into the Pontifical Institute and so on and so forth. That was, that was what was going to happen. But I felt like I couldn't really leave Baltimore until I had told these people how important they had been in my life. So <laughs> I wrote them this letter, a little note saying, look, I'm going away for a week or two. I'm coming back for a wedding, and I'd love to talk to you uh, and you know say thanks to you for what you've done and what you've meant for me. I said, you know, I'm going to use the metaphorics of my community. You know, you've been the arms and the hands of God. And, you know, you've kept me feeling warm and in contact with with people and positive about. Uh, who I am and what my calling is and so on and so forth. Well, they were going, what is this? And so they said, well, sure, you can come over, but what are you talking about? And suddenly I realized, oh, my Lord, I'm going to have to witness. <laughs> it was terrifying. <laughs> so anyway, so we had coffee and we talked and they said, okay, now, you know, we've been, we've been talking about everything but what you wrote in that what were you talking about? So anyway, so I just started talking about, you know, why this language, why these metaphors, you know, this is a community of faith that I grew up in, that I, that I own, that I, that I live out of. And th these are our metaphors because we, we have this deep sense that we and everyone lives their lives before the face of God. And I thought, well, maybe that'll, that'll hook up with the guys, uh, you know, Jewish, you know, the, the eyes of God are watching you. It's kind of a Jewish theme, too, and secular Jews know it. And so I thought, well, maybe maybe that'll... But, you know, as I went went on and talked and talked and talked, it was, uh, you know, they uh, they decided, well, we love you anyway. <laughs> you know, sort of like that. And, and I left, and, and we wrote for years, and, you know, it sort of petered out finally. But at any rate, uh, years later, I was super bored in a worship service and we used to have our, our the catechisms and stuff in the in the back of our our hymnal <laughs> so of course i was bored so i got out the got out the hymnal i was reading the heidelberg catechism and i suddenly i just realized oh my goodness 
that's where that language all came from. It's all right here. So, like, I had no idea because, you know, I just sort of suppressed all this memory work that I'd had to do as a younger person. And But it was all there, and it was operative at a time when I felt at a loss. And, I mean, I, you know, I was flying by the seat of my pants, but I really felt like I had to do this. I, I, I felt almost like a Kantian imperative, you know, like, you must do this. And uh, And there it was. It was just clearly I was reflecting this formation. It was in there. It had become second nature, and I was totally unaware of it. So that's that's when you realize you're in the grip of something. And that's what that's whatever worldview means, I think it's got that. Like something has you. Figuring out the way that you look at the world is a pretty tall order may mean going back over childhood experiences or examining deeply held faith beliefs. It might be difficult to describe, or too personal to share with a stranger. Worldviewing is intimate, and there's something about it that defies even the best metaphors. To try and expand the conversation about worldviewing into some other realms, I then asked, what do worldviewing, wisdom, and faith have to do with each other? Well, um, I'll start with the, the wisdom piece. Wisdom, again, in in the Western tradition, I mean, it's had, I think Nick talked about it in terms of the biblical tradition, you know, coming out of the Greek tradition, incorporated into sort of even Christian ethics, uh, the, the, the sort of what you might call a wisdom literature that governed many an allegorical, you know, was sort of the focus of, a number, a certain strain of allegorical uh, writing in the mid, mid, late Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and down into even as late as the 19th century, where you have the pursuit of wisdom, practical wisdom for nieces, and the pursuit of this character of Sophia, very often, which was tied into the relationship between reason and will, always. It was this, it was called practical wisdom because it was around what we do in this life, how we are motivated um, to keep pursuing wisdom that will lead to some kind of a human flourishing, and that it's that it's accompanied by love. Uh, it's accompanied by a motive force that keeps us always moving in the direction of, of a greater good. And so I like, I think, that notion of, of wisdom as something that um, informs informs what we do in this world as we you know seek to live it in an appropriate way that 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 is so you have you know these this female character of wisdom who is often pursued you know pursued for her for her beauty and for her goodness but pursued because she can also um, enlighten us uh, and can give us a certain kind of knowledge um, that is informed by love that moves us ever forward. So I like those that image certainly. And again, if you think of one's faith uh, in in a compassionate God, uh, you know you see that that love is what moves us forward. You know, so I so I think the world viewing piece, of course, is to be 
open continually to being, to allow that love uh, to work uh, in whatever it is you're doing, um, to allow, you know, the desire for, you know, for a, a, an enlightening wisdom that moves one um, towards an ethical life in this world. That is sort of, the, in a nutshell, the shape of this allegorical tradition, but it's, I think it brings it all together. I think it's a, an active, continually self-examining pursuit of what it is that compels us forward as Christians to live in this world in a way that is uh, redemptive, uh, restorative, and not, you know, escapist in some way. I mean, there's a kind of ultimacy that's part and parcel of worldviewing. It seems to me that uh, worldviewing has depth and power. As the depth and power to move you, uh, the more it deals with the, that sort of ultimate level of awareness and uh, concern that uh, you have. And that, of course, this isn't something that you just sort of invent, like you know, you're, you're the poet of your own life. Uh, although there's lots of that, thank goodness, too. But uh, but rather, you know, what is invented comes from so many different sources, right? Uh, you work with material. You're the demiurge of your life, maybe. You work with the material you're given, and you're given it by your church community. You're given it by your broader culture. You're given it by the books you've read or, or you know, the artworks you've looked at or the poetry that you've uh, memorized and quote to yourself at night when you feel alone or whatever, you know, sorry. <laughs> oh boy, verbal diarrhea. Okay. Get, get back to it. Anyways, the, the world viewing has depth, uh, the more, uh, the is issues of, of real ultimacy are at play and wisdom. It seems to me is also tied to ultimacy, um, yeah, so I wouldn't say it's the same thing as worldviewing. I think that it, it, there's a kind of distinctness, so that's tied to, you know, what in the philosophical tradition is often called um, pra practical, uh, practical reason, uh, or um, yeah, a practical wisdom. It's practical. It's it's about you know knowing when and how and. You know, those strange things like when is something appropriate and how does it become right? Because if you do it in the wrong way, it, 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 it becomes not wise, but it becomes foolish. And, you know, there's, there are those sorts of things that, constant, that allow you to, well, maybe that's the connection you could say, that allow you to make your way in the world. So wisdom is that deep I'll use the word knowledge in, you know, in quotation marks, knowledge uh, that allows you to pick out a path in terms of you, those, that deepest sense of ultimacy that grounds your identity. And uh, yeah, maybe that's the way to put it together. And that, um, that ultimacy, that access to that ultimacy is really a product of faith, right? So faith is sort of a, a way of apprehending the ultimate, that that apprehension takes faith. Maybe that's a way of getting at it. So then you'd have wisdom as the quote-unquote knowledge that lets you make your way, worldview as the what impels you 
you know, the, the principles of motion that allow wisdom, you know, that wisdom combines with to allow you to make your way. And that faith is, is an apprehensive quality that, that gives you access to the ultimacy that is, uh, the deep constituent of both wisdom and world healing. Well, Gideon and I have had this long discussion. He still likes the word and I don't like it anymore, right? Uh, I know it's not supposed to mean this, but the viewing part makes it sound like you're standing over against an object that you're looking at, uh, a world or whatever. And where it's supposed to, it's really supposed to talk about the fact that our experience is always already interpreted by us and for us and mediated. And we inherit worldviews, and yeah, we can critically reflect upon them in limited ways, but we can never not have one. So I guess in all those ways, it's at least like what Calvinists define as faith, in the sense that, you know, I was learned from my professor Hendrik Hardy, talked about faith as being an orientation of trust. So it's a way of being grounded in life where you don't provide your own ground, but you trust that the ground under you will hold you up sort of existentially that's what faith is is that kind of a trusting um and that does go back to the you know the uh, biblical language which is at least the greek word pistis is related to trust if not it doesn't just mean trust but uh yeah so what was it so faith and what else worldviewing wisdom yeah nick probably gave a much better answer to this question than i'm giving well, yeah, wisdom, I think, is a kind of knowing that isn't, that is a gift of orienting yourself in trust and faith. So it's not like just ratiocination, but it's a way of taking in revelation and having it lead, guide, be guiding for life. So everybody has a way of life. I mean, everybody has a life. Everybody that has a life has a way of life. You know, we do have this phrase, get a life. So there's ambiguity as to how much of a life one has. It's not just about existing, right? Um, same with a way of life. But in some sense, everybody has a way of life. So if you have a way of life, you have religion. Religion is about finding your way in life. To have a way of life, you've got to find your way. How do you do that? You... Uh, exercise trust and hope along with all kinds of other things. You may not feel that you're exercising faith, trust, hope yourself. You may feel you're not spiritual, but that's because you're relying on other people who have done that work already and have forged a kind of way of living. And you're following in their footsteps and it feels comfortable, but somebody has been doing the faithing and the hoping at the cutting edge at some point and you're following in that in the wake as as it were so you too are in a sense living by faith and by hope you may not be exercising uh, responsibility for doing that so much but um, you are living so you answer you answer the question of faith and hope more communally nobody gets off the hook in terms of issues of spirituality, finding a way in life. And wisdom is, as I would define it, how you find your way. How do you find your way through? Especially when there seems to be no way through. That's the wisdom 
question. What do you turn to to discern that path? To uncover the path or to maybe blaze the trail? But in what direction do you go? So that's wisdom, and there are different forms of wisdom. Uh, Western culture has turned to the power of reason to find our way through, and that gave birth to Western philosophy as a form of wisdom. Well, Paul is quite blunt about referring to that as a foolishness, um, but it's a foolishness that rejects the way of the cross as foolishness. <laughs> so um, you have a clash of different wisdoms there. I'm all for Christians getting into the arena of philosophy because if you're going to rethink, you know, what politics is or what geography is or what theology might be or how to do good history, historiography, you deal with philosophical questions, the big, big questions about the nature of reality and knowledge and, and so forth. Those have got to be tackled and thought through. You need to do the hard philosophical work as an arena in which to be busy. But the wisdom that needs to guide us in Christian scholarship has to come from somewhere other than the Western philosophical tradition. Um, Albeit it's from a source that has made its presence felt in the Western philosophical tradition too. But often and fringes so philosophy is a great arena to be busy in but the wisdom that we need for our lives and for our scholarship need to be drawn from different spiritual roots than the dream of reason Question on worldviewing. I wanted to try and understand how my interviewees saw their worldviews in context, as shaped by and shaping of the communities and ecologies around them. Obviously, as we have heard, worldviewing is not something that is static, nor is it something a person can do in isolation. Worldviewing only makes sense when there are other people. With that in mind, my last question was. Does your worldview resemble that of your parents, your partner, your church, your community? How does it differ? Well, I think uh, my worldview has uh, multiple sources in the sense that I've been formed. Uh, you know, we're all formed heterogeneously. Uh, the idea that you could have, well, it's like single heartedness, like that there could be just a single source. Uh, like we used to talk that way at the Institute, you know, the biblical worldview, uh, you know, not even a biblical worldview, you know, so biblical worldview is a claim already. A biblical worldview is, uh, you know, false from that. But then the biblical worldview, like every other one is, is false, uh, or less good or whatever, or deviates from a single, single worldview. And as we used to talk that way, but I mean, our formation as persons is in, in a deeply heterogeneous world. And there's, there's no getting around that. And I think, I just think the Holy Spirit works with that, you know, uh, within the context of the freedom that we've been given in Christ, you know, it does the best that the Holy Spirit can do with what we become and, and, and so on. And 
So yeah, I mean, I'm heavily influenced by uh, the broader culture, but I've been formed by my parents, and there's all kinds of ways in which uh, I can see how what they cared about was transferred to me, even as I can see how that's happened, in, you know, in my own children. So how that gets passed on, I've I've already told a story about how the church language was passed on in a way that actually be. Uh, surprised the pants off me, you know, when it became incontrovertible, shall we say. <laughs> so, I mean, all of that, uh, my uh, my living with my wife, we've, we've affected each other in all kinds of ways, um, all kinds of things that she's taught me and continues to teach me. So, yeah, I mean, and, and that does reach the level of ultimacy in all, in all those cases. I would, I like to think most of the time for good and sometimes not because of course i've been a terrible disappointment to myself at times too where uh one the one side of me judges the other side of me and says that's awful so yeah so it's not always good and i think my experience is pretty normal so yeah so i you know the the conglomeration is probably unique to me right the way it all gets collated and invented if i may use the old rhetorical term right so which is both discovery and construction at the same time yeah that's it's probably unique to me but uh the elements aren't unique to me they're shared with you know every if you know when i was born and raised where i've been raised what books I've read, uh, what people have mentored me, and so on and so forth. It's probably not very surprising. What are the drives that move me? Yeah, that I'll ha- you have to break that one down. So, um, you know, I, again, I mean, I guess this notion of worldview is slippery in the sense that, you know, they're at the core of it is that each one of us will possess a worldview, um, you know, that is only, that's going to be unique to us. You know, despite the fact that it's all contextually based, so you you know you so there are you can see inappropriate worldviews. Um, one's own worldview could certainly. I'll just give an example uh, that's topical at the moment, which is I'm just going to take the uh, because I because I was there last summer. I was in Myanmar visiting my daughter. Um, you know, there's a crisis there that's that's happening that the world at large is appropriately um, concerned about, and you know we live in an an era where that's we're able uh, globally um, to you know we have things put in place like the United Nations that's able to make a statement, uh, and yet if you enter into you know this the worldview, I think of the dominant. Um, Buddhist majority in Myanmar at the moment, uh, you know, it's it's encompassing, you know, it's it's there's a, a fundamental racism that's operative, not just for the Muslim Rohingya but also towards other tribal groups that you know at this crossroads, uh, you know, and there you see what we're seeing right now is this remarkable conflict um, between you know the dominant sort of ethical approach in the developed world in particular and and in a, a country that's been closed where that kind of racism is it's even hard for us to kind of comprehend 
you know, so there's a worldview that, you know, dominates. And it will be very hard. I think it's already, you know, we have evidence of how hard it is. There can be no expectation that the country will step into with a different understanding anytime soon, one hopes, but it will take, um, you know, a, a long period of education, a long period of recognition, and, and hopefully a peaceful one, uh, as much as that is possible. So, yeah, maybe this is, you know, one of these difficult recognitions around um, worldview and change and responsibility and, um, you know, so I would say that one has to maybe um, keep assessing one's worldview and keep engaged by one's commitments and be, and and willing to recognize uh, the ways in which you know we're 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 an incredibly privileged society and country. With that comes uh, you know sometimes inappropriate expectations about what life should be and. It's worthwhile to to recognize the power of that context for the kinds of decisions we make in all sorts of areas. Um, so I would want to, you know, speak of the importance of worldview as, you know, as something that can appropriately and and will shape us no matter what. Um, but that that we need to take responsibility as well. You know, moving moving forward. I think that's a really hard question to answer because I wouldn't have the worldview I have without the upbringing I had, which is what my parents not only taught me themselves, but they supported the Christian day school movement. They sent me to the Christian schools. The Christian schools had a very kind of, a lot of the curriculum there was built here at ICS or with the help from educational leadership at ICS and, um, so a lot of the way of under, even interpreting the Bible and how to teach that to children and all that kind of thing, I was raised in that. So I, I would be a fool to say it's not similar at all or anything like that, right? Um, but in my own personal case, my parents were very conservative, Christian, suspicious of ICS because, you know, the professors here already in the 70s when I was a child would take pretty controversial stands on social issues. Uh, you know, whether it was women in office or homosexuality in the early 90s, uh, you know, things of that nature. They weren't always very pastoral in how they did it. They kind of was like, hey, what do you guys think about this? And we think that this should change and you should too and all that. At least that's how people heard it, whether or not that's how it was intended to come across. So, you know, and uh, if you know anything about the, you may not know much about the history of the Christian Reformed Church in Canada and in, in North America, but in the nine, I, don't, I think it was in the 90s. Maybe the late 80s. Yeah, no, it was probably in the 90s. There was a split. One side became the United Reformed, what's now known as the United Reformed Church. My parents are members of, well, my dad passed away in 2013, but my mom is still a member of that. And these are basically people who left the Christian Reformed Church over disagreement with ordaining women was really the key issue. So, so in my home life, there's been this tension because I went on to go to ICS and do a PhD there, and now I teach there. And you know, as far as I understood growing up, ICS was where all the trouble started, or one of the key places anyway, right, in, in this tradition, and, you know, and uh, and was kind of mistrusted and disparaged. So um, so I don't know what accounts for that. Um, I guess my parents entrusted me to a community that ICS was also a part of, and I found that 
corner of it. Uh, thankfully, I'm very grateful that it was there. I, you know, I probably wouldn't, I say this to a lot of people, I, say, I probably wouldn't still be a Christian if there wasn't something in my own tradition that said, hey, we have space for someone like you to ask some questions and to work through your issues and your doubts and things like that. So, um, but at the same time, it put me into a lot of tension with my parents, uh, even in my adult, through my adult years, you know, much to my regret. So it's, it's definitely different <laughs> than what my parents have. One of the ways I came to describe it to myself later on reflecting on the difference was, and it's partly because of what I wanted faith to be for me. I wanted faith to be joy-based, possibility-based, like the kinds of things we're talking about, hope-based, something that gave you a springboard into life, you know, that helped you with your questions and didn't necessarily answer them, but that was, that opened up room and didn't shut down room. And I always found my parents' faith, at least as they expressed it to us, and maybe that was just because they were worried about their kids and if they were going down the wrong road, was fear-based. And I think that just kills it. And it kills an ability to have an actual kind of, I don't know, a really full human life. And I, when faith does that, when it sort of becomes fear-based, and you start asking yourself, well, sh should I go to that movie or not? Or can I listen to that kind of music or not? And you start to put up all these barriers in front of yourself way too soon. And to, I just decided I didn't want to live like that. I don't, you know, my soul be damned if I made the wrong choice. But, um, you know, creation is good. Uh, it's here to be embraced. We're supposed to make new things, uh, you know, all in a spirit of obedience, sure. But I don't, you know, it's about broadening out and opening up possibility and not about shutting down and closing down possibility, I think. You know, sure, we do, do we have to have wisdom and discernment between what paths lead to destruction and death and which ones create more life? Sure. And we have to choose the latter over the former, but we also can be quite surprised by what might be life-giving and what we hadn't thought was and what might be coming from other traditions that are life-giving that we thought might not be able to be or something like that. So I think it differs. I mean, with my parents, I mean, I do share many deep values with them. We interpret the, way, the world in similar ways in certain areas and not so much in others. So there's overlap, but there's difference. With my church, church I sort of feel it's, it's different, I think. It's like, what's at the heart of church? I think what I go back to, you know, over and over again, for me, it's the experience of um, the Eucharist and going through that and in that sense connecting with people of faith the living and the dead is part of one community that kind of connection is that's at the heart of it for me so if that's not there i don't care to go to church even if everybody has the same worldview as me yeah that's not enough to get me to church i think so What's at the heart of it for me, if that's there, it's, it's shared. I, I don't even have to fundamentally share that with other people in the same church building. If I feel I am sharing something with believers elsewhere in the world and, and down the ages. So um, the worldview thing then it can be secondary and I still might feel motivated to be there. So the difference thing is, you know, I, I spent a lot of many years trying to find a church 
with Christians who had a similar worldview to me, and I've, I think I've kind of given up on that. I mean, it's just a pleasant surprise when I do encounter Christians. Uh, I, you want to f- find kindred spirits, and the kindred spirit thing is is really what's important. And there's some overlap with worldview there, but it's like I mean, I, I do know people have you know on paper looks like have a very similar worldview to me, and then we are not kindred spirits at all. And I don't really care to hang out with them, really, to be honest. And it's like so the worldview thing. Sometimes it can be important, sometimes it is not all important. So I think more important than worldview for me is just this, this sense of, yeah, spiritual kinship, finding my way, working through with, you know, many of the sort of struggles and problems and, and challenges that, that come up in life. And I can feel very close to people who are, fellow travellers around with the same kind of challenges. And they may not be Christians. Yeah, in some sense their worldview is going to be quite different in certain areas, but there's a wisdom connection. Yeah. it seems, is only partially chosen. Much of what determines how we respond to things, particularly at an intrinsic level, is largely affected by our settings. But, as we've heard, learning the art of a practical wisdom of oneself can help us navigate the complicated world of interweaving ideologies and practicalities. Examining how you interpret data and how you relate to other people can be extremely revelatory and it can also help you become a more empathetic person. But, as we've also heard, learning how to investigate one's worldview can be intrusive and painful, and there are some things about it that you just aren't ready to say. This kind of exercise takes sensitivity and an instinct toward healing. Here at the Institute for Christian Studies, we work for investigation and healing in the context of a Christian faith But we're certainly not the only ones doing this kind of work, and there's definitely more investigation to be done. Our lens of philosophy gives us a certain kind of bent when answering questions of worldviewing, along with hope, wonder, and heartbreak, a bent that you may have picked up over the course of these interviews. How do you describe what a worldview is? Do you talk about your personal history, your parents, where you grew up, maybe your religious beliefs? Do you talk about the history of your community, perhaps about their political beliefs or societal landmarks? Maybe you include geography or race, maybe a set of documents, creeds, or papers. Hopefully, these four podcast episodes have hinted at a set of ideas that may help you articulate your worldview. To respond to this podcast or to ask any other questions about our project of wayfinding, you can tweet at the Institute for Christian Studies or email us at gcarhart at icscanada.edu. For more information about ICS, the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, or the Wayfinding Project, visit icscanada.edu. Please also consider leaving us a review on iTunes. 
just to help more people find out about and keep up with us. As always, thanks for listening. Keep wondering. Thank you.